forecast for today. Uh, mainly cloudy, a few showers and squally thunderstorms. Sunny intervals during the day. The maximum temperature will be around 31 degrees. And the outlook is it for it to be windy with heavy squally showers and thunderstorms on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, there is a thunderstorm warning in force. It is 26 degrees, 94% relative humidity. Times 8.30. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The operator of two community vaccination centers says almost 300 children under the age of three have been brought in for their COVID jabs since the government lowered the age limit to six months from Thursday. Dr. Samuel Kwok said he expected that figure to increase slowly. He told RTHK that the parents didn't appear to be too concerned about the Sinovac jab, given that it used the inactivated virus similar to the flu vaccine. In fact, infants or young kids receiving vaccination is pretty common and very usual stuff or routine for kids. So now that we're using Sinovac, which is an inactivated virus vaccine, is quite similar to the flu vaccine, in fact. So I think parents are not very concerned about harms or any side effects from this. So they just come and receive. Of course, there are a few inquiries and questions about what are the conditions and things that whether they're suitable. Dr. Kwong, Dr. Kwok also said his center still had between 20 and 50 people a day coming in for their very first COVID jab. The Center for Health Protection says it has noticed an increase in the number of COVID cases linked to the more infectious Omicron subvariants. The center's Dr. Chuang Shukwan said about 10% of Saturday's cases are thought to involve either BA.4 or BA.5, while the average last week was 7.3%. Taking reference from WHO and Singapore and other places, uh, we understand that there's a growth advantage of BA.5 over other subvariants. So we can't exclude the possibility that BA.5 will further increase the proportion and uh, it will become the uh, circulating strain in Hong Kong. The U.S. Senate has passed the huge climate and health care spending bill that is a central part of Joe Biden's program as president. The bill will channel more than $400 billion toward his clean energy goals. It had been stuck in the Senate for months due to the opposition of two Democrats. It'll return to the House of Representatives for a final reading and is expected to be approved. The BBC's Peter Bowes reports. This is a pared-down version of Joe Biden's $2 trillion Build Back Better plan, but it's still the most consequential package of measures to fight climate change in US history. It includes a series of financial incentives aimed at steering the world's biggest economy away from fossil fuels. The bill also includes significant investments in healthcare with measures to reduce prescription drug costs and it imposes higher taxes on businesses with profits exceeding a billion dollars. With three months to go until America's midterm elections, the passage of this bill will be seen as a boost for the Democrats. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. Uh, I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you. On today's programme, we're talking more about COVID-19 and also the unusually high number of imported malaria cases in Hong Kong. The Centre for Health Protection has said it's seen an increase in the more infectious Omicron sub-variants, 
while one prominent uh, government adviser has said the future coronavirus situation depends greatly on the spread of BA.5. Concern has also been expressed about the relatively low number of young children below the age of three who've uh, received a COVID vaccine jab or are booked for one. Meanwhile, the hospital authority has said that public health facilities could be put under pressure if the territory continues to see more imported malaria cases. As of yesterday, the figure had increased to 75. And after 9.15, we'll talk about cyber fraud related to dating apps after a study found that one in four young adults had fallen victim. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And we're joined uh, now on the line by our first guests, uh, Dr Vijay Danisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health and also uh, another uh, Hong Kong U professor, uh, Dr Siddharth Sridhar, Clinical Assistant Professor at the Department of Microbiology at Hong Kong U. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, perhaps, um, uh, Dr Sridhar, we could, uh, we could ask you first. Uh, good morning. Good morning. So there's a lot of attention focused on the BA5 sub-variant. Uh, what do we know about uh, BA5 and how transmissible is it compared with others? Well, it, uh, looking at examples all around the world, it uh, has a growth advantage over uh, other Omicron variants, uh, uh, basically things like uh, BA1 or BA2. And in many countries, uh, it has gradually replaced these variants. And this has been attributed to an inherent uh, uh, increase in transmissibility of this, uh, of, of BA4, BA5 over other um, Omicron subtypes. Um, but in terms of disease severity, it doesn't seem to cause uh, any more severe disease than uh, uh, other types of Omicron. And uh, it doesn't seem to be putting um, healthcare systems under extreme stress in other parts of the world. So uh, viruses mutate all the time, and this is uh, part of that story. So COVID, for example, SARS coronavirus 2, the virus that causes COVID, hasn't stopped mutating since it uh, first emerged in human populations. And this is just another chapter um, in that journey. So yes, it is going to probably replace uh, BA2 in the foreseeable future locally. And yes, that may that process may be linked to an increase in the number of cases. But uh, I don't think we should be unduly alarmed over uh, the, the rise of BA5. Because it's not more virulent? No, it doesn't look like it causes more severe disease. Uh, in fact, Omicron in general seems to be much more, uh, uh, much milder than uh, variants like Delta. That was truly one of the uh, uh, more nasty variants that we have seen. Hmm. Is Delta now completely out of the picture? Yeah, it's uh, almost uh, phased out completely. And is that because of the prominence of the new subvariants like BA4 and BA5? It's actually because of Omicron. Original Omicron, uh, like BA1 and BA2, oh, sorry, had a large part in phasing out Delta. Yeah, because mm. of two reasons. They were inherently more transmissible, and also they were able to infect people with, uh, who had caught COVID previously or who had been vaccinated previously. 
So they were very, very good at doing that. So Delta didn't really um, stand much of a chance. Good riddance. It, it was quite virulent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, okay, Vijay Denisakaran, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, thanks also for joining us. Uh, so what lessons do you think we can learn from uh, places like uh, Singapore, which has uh, seen an upsurge in figures which have been attributed to the uh, more transmissible BA5 uh, Omicron subvariant? Um, the, the magnitude or the impact of BA5 in various countries has been quite variable, as we've seen um, in, for example, South Africa, um, Singapore um, has actually managed quite well, and it's been a while since they've opened. I mean, I really think from the data, what's been coming up is people, the countries which have had a big BA2 wave, um, has, is actually doing quite well with the increase of BA5 in particular. Um, and this is because of the reasons which Professor Dr. Sitsrida just mentioned, where the virus is continually mutating, but it's fairly similar to the BA2 wave which we've just had. So many scientists are mentioning that this is mainly due to the immunity wall built by the BA2 variant very recently in Hong Kong. Um, we don't know how long this immunity wave uh, wall would last, especially in causing a large epidemic. But um, the majority of the population who had got infected with an Omicron virus or had vaccines, as data has repeatedly shown, we should be fairly um, well-to-do. The, uh, I must say the press conference, it made it sound as though this increase in BA5 was serious. Um, that's right, actually. I mean, I think in a public health perspective, uh, messaging has not been uh, really great throughout this uh, pandemic, as we've seen from the beginning. Um, of course, uh, uh, anybody who wants to, you know, uh, discuss and describe the new variants, they're always going to say it's more increased, because if you have an increase in transmission, if you have immune evasion, um, if there is going to be an increase in cases. But However, I mean, I don't really believe that anybody is saying that it's going to be similar to the February-March wave in Hong Kong. And, uh, yes, uh, we had one uh, prominent government advisor, uh, David Hoy, from the Chinese University yesterday, uh, quoted as saying we could be seeing more than 10,000 cases a day if BA5 uh, does become the dominant strain. Uh, is, is that something that we ought to be concerned about? Or, or as has been already uh, mentioned on the programme this morning, that uh, it seems to cause uh, pretty mild infections, frankly? I mean, that's right, actually. I mean, um, I would say that the general population, the vast majority of the population are okay. Um, it, is, it is important to continue to, you know, uh, vaccinate the population and, and keep advertising to the population and in, um, the promoting vaccine uptake, essentially, for the population. Yeah. But however, the biggest issue we have is the hospital, um, the healthcare system in Hong Kong, which cannot handle a big COVID wave. That's, that's the question that uh, Dr. Sridhar is probably better to answer this question. Mm-hmm. However, uh, while we've built an immunity wall to BA2, we've actually have an immunity gap towards many other respiratory viruses, which is another concern which, I, which is increasingly building as we, as we close Hong Kong continuously, as well as the mainland China. Uh, over longer periods, whether once we open, there's going to be a much bigger wave. Uh, we are already seeing a larger waves of respiratory viruses happening in many parts of the world since they released, not just now, but over the past one year. Um, so these are the concerns that I have, and uh, my concerns are not particularly just with COVID-19 anymore. <laughs> because these other viruses, uh, people are not building up immunity to them. 
that's that's right, actually. So, um, uh, seasonal influenza virus has caused annual or even biannual epidemics in Hong Kong, a smaller summer wave and a larger winter wave. Um, and uh, and that has not happened in the last two and a half years. And the, the biggest issue is that the elderly children is particularly most vulnerable at the moment, especially because they've not been exposed to a vast range of viruses they, they would have normally got exposed to. And this particular group apparently is the most vulnerable at the moment. And whenever you have an increased numbers of susceptibility or susceptible host in the population, there is bound to be a much larger epidemic than usually occurs. So it's, it's actually not looking very good for in terms of other respiratory viruses at the moment. Can I ask, change for a moment and ask about malaria? Should we be concerned about malaria? Um, Malaria is, uh, I think we should all be concerned about malaria because it's one of the biggest uh, killers globally. Um, however, in Hong Kong at this moment, uh, it is not a huge concern because um, of, of a few reasons. First is it's a vector uh, bone transmitted uh, disease and the particular vector which carries the parasite um, uh, is it, not in abundant quality or it's, it's, it's not very competent in, in transmitting the, the, the parasites in the population really well. So in that case, I think we don't have to have a huge concern. Um, of malaria in Hong Kong. And uh, looking through the cases a bit more as well, uh, it looks like more, most of these cases have uh, uh, arrived from Africa. And in particular, looking through the newspapers, it looks like the majority of the infected uh, people have arrived from Guinea. Right. And uh, looking at the Guinea's epidemiology, it's highly endemic of malaria. And it looks like all these people came from the same company, probably, you know, uh, visited a site which had a large prevalence of malaria, got infected and arrived at the same time. But if a Hong Kong mosquito, if I can call them that, um, bit somebody who was had malaria, could that mosquito then go on and give it to someone else? Uh, that's, I think that's the, that's the correct way how it transmits regularly. However, just to remind the uh, listeners that I'm not a parasite expert, but a virology mm -hmm. expert, um, so I'll defer this question to my uh, co-guest. <laughs> Dr. Srida? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, so we actually have uh, mosquitoes in Hong Kong. Obviously, everybody's been killing them in their homes, I'm sure. Uh, there are three types of mosquitoes we have in Hong Kong. We have the uh, Edis uh, mosquito, the uh, Culex mosquito, and the Anopheles mosquito. Of these, uh, actually only the Anopheles mosquito can transmit malaria. However, the Anopheles mosquito is not found in urban areas of Hong Kong. It's basically, it requires very specific types of uh, environments like paddy fields or, um, or, or uh, fresh running streams, really countryside. Um, so in urban areas of Hong Kong, there uh, these unfortunate patients have been, uh, during their stay in Hong Kong, they basically do not have an offline mosquito that can transmit malaria. So the risk to the local population is actually close to zero. Mm. But, but they are found in rural areas? They're found yeah. in rural areas, so there are malaria vectors in rural areas, but you wouldn't expect these uh, malaria patients or normally imported malaria cases to actually head into those kind of uh, mm. places in Hong Kong. Mm. Are, in, are they basically in transit to the mainland, these uh, people from Guinea? That's my understanding, yes. They were in transit in Hong Kong um, before returning to the mainland. Mm. All right, so that seems to be 
not something we sh should keep us awake at night. Well, we're back to BA5. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, actually, we were hoping to talk more about uh, malaria uh, after nine o'clock because uh, both of our current guests, I believe, can stay with us uh, till uh, 9.15. Uh, we'll be joined uh, in a moment as well by, uh, by another guest who's a, a family physician to talk about uh, vaccination rates, among, especially among uh, young children. But uh, just a comment here from... Uh, listener Richard on our Facebook says uh, um, uh, this is re referring uh, going going back to Omicron and uh, and the subvariant says uh, around and around we go perhaps if the hospital authority stopped admitting people with runny noses and a slight cough our hospitals wouldn't be put uh, under pressure um, um, Dr Sridhar are you able to comment about uh, admission criteria I mean are we uh, and treatment for people who've uh, caught Covid or, or something similar I mean um, should we be put, um, admitting so many people into hospital I mean the numbers are going up uh, at the moment, aren't they? So, what do you what do you think? I mean, is there scope for you know more people just to be just to, just to stay at home and uh, self medicate or whatever? Sure, um, that's the crux of the matter, and that's the reason why rising cases still worries me. Is not because of Omicron, but how we deal with Omicron in Hong Kong, because we regard Omicron uh, or COVID-19 in general as an airborne virus. In other words, it can be transmitted through the air. This this is a scientific fact. It can be transmitted through the air. But the problem is when you admit somebody with an airborne condition into a Hong Kong hospital, they need to be in a negative pressure setting, which is a very, very particular type of uh, isolation uh, uh, facility, right? The problem is, as the number of cases in the community go up, we inevitably have a number of people entering hospital with milder disease, and I'll go into the reasons why uh, in, in a bit. But that once we have the surge in milder disease, they're all put into um, an increasing am uh, the amount of beds are hijacked as isolation beds to accommodate this mild COVID. And this leaves fewer and fewer parts of the hospital to actually cater to other diseases, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, what have you. So that leads to surgeries being cancelled, appointments being cancelled, chemo being cancelled, all kinds of routine services getting suspended. So even if the actual COVID-19 in, 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 in a significant uh, minority of admitted cases is mild, it still hijacks enough of the hospital to make a routine mm -hmm. service impossible. Yeah. And that's what the uh, uh, Professor Lo Chung was uh, referring to when he was talking about disruption in HA services uh, with, with the rise in Omicron. So the, the question that listeners might have is then why are we admitting mild cases? Yes. <laughs> I was going to... I had a... Is, I had a... Sorry. The real life is messy. Um, when you get an elderly person in an uh, elderly, if in a residential care home coming down with COVID, there is a tremendous... Um, well, I, I would say understandable incentive for the old age home to actually ensure that that elderly person is in hospital because ventilation in the elderly home may not be adequate. Right. Um, they may not be equipped to deal with uh, 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 COVID-19 in terms of personal protective equipment. It's to protect the other elderly. There is pressure from the family that this person has COVID. You've got to get them into medical attention. And then it becomes very difficult for A&E departments to send people back into, say, residential care home settings. Or um, say you have an elderly person living at home 
and um, the other family members are down with COVID as well. The A&E department can't reasonably send the elderly back because they may not be able to take care of themselves at home when the other two have gone off to Penny's Bay. So placement issues. So this leads to a lot of milder cases making it through and into the hospital. So we can't strictly rely on medical criteria to decide who to admit. And that and the way we deal with Omicron in hospitals is killing the hospital system. That, that seems to be a, a very serious situation because um, I had a mild case of, of COVID in, in early June and I just stayed at home and was given the medication and I stayed at home. Uh, there are, seems to be quite a few people who do that, but you have explained that people in care homes can't be sent back there maybe. That, that's a problem because of the other residents and people who are living in a, a cramped, home condition also with, with other family members. So there are, if you like, non-medical reasons why hospital admission is more likely. 100%. We do have community isolation facilities, but uh, I would say in terms of as environments for the elderly go, they, those are even worse than hospitals. You're, all, you're talking about Florentine ward kind of settings, and it's, it's terribly disorienting for the elderly. So, I, I mean, it is frustrating because we've what we really need to do is beef up decentralized care for COVID-19 in community settings for the elderly. So in terms of actually uh, making sure elderly stay in environments that they're familiar with when they're suffering from a mild infection is so important. So if they could stay in residential care homes, they're given the pills there and, vent and, and, and you know, we, we retrofit better ventilation into these kind of settings, you know, instead of wasting billions of dollars on one-off PCR tests, and this is actually an investment into the health of our elderly for the foreseeable future. But that's not happening. So the hospital is always going to come under pressure when there's a surge in mostly mild COVID in the community, and that's heartbreaking. Because there's a morale issue, isn't there, with the health of a senior citizen. If they're suddenly hooked out and projected into a completely unfamiliar environment, their mental health is going to suffer. It's a big thing. Uh, mental health is a huge issue. They, uh, things like depression happen. If they have underlying dementia, that can deteriorate quite rapidly into something we call delirium in an unfamiliar uh, uh, circumstance. Say they're bedbound. They, they would almost certainly be bedbound in the hospital, and that would result in pressure source over parts of their body that are in contact with the bed for a long time. They run into all kinds of complications because of hospitalization or unnecessary institutionalization for a mild illness. And then there's the opportunity cost for people with actual medical emergencies like hip fractures or heart attacks or stroke. I promise you care is going to suffer because you've diverted 50% of staff away to take care of mild COVID and negative pressure wards. The other wards become extremely crowded, extremely understaffed, and they're not able to do anything about it because surgeons are diverted away from normal wards to take care of uh, negative pressure wards. So it's, it's, uh, it's bad for everybody, basically. Okay, we're going to switch our attention slightly now to the uh, issue of vaccinations and vaccination uptake, uh, particularly among younger children. Uh, we're joined uh, on the line by Dr. Betty Kwan, who's a family physician. Uh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning. 
morning. So uh, what's your experience uh, these days with people coming for inoculations and, and what about the, the number of uh, young children that uh, are, uh, their parents are bringing them to be having a COVID jab? I mean, uh, have you uh, much experience with that? The scientific community uh, uh, has just announced uh, last Thursday that uh, we can lower the age of uh, vaccination of uh, the Sinovac uh, to uh, uh, six months old. And then uh, we have received some uh, uh, inquiry from the parents. And then because it's just last week that it started, and then uh, we are hoping that we will have some, um, some, some turn up on this week uh, for uh, the immunization. Where, where do we stand with getting the toddler version of the BioNTech? Um, I think the government is still uh, liaising with the uh, uh, with the pharmaceutical company uh, of um, uh, getting the, uh, the 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 the, uh, the infant version, which is one tenth of the adult version. So it will not be available for quite a while. So the only choice is the Sinovac vaccine, which is very safe. It's proven to be very safe, and which is an inactivated vaccine. Right. So um, I think if the parents um, are not that concerned about which brand, I think they should really, you know, start immunizing their kids uh, with the Sinovac right now, because it takes about, you know, for the three jack for, for, for the complete uh, uh, immunization of three jabs, you need to have an interval of. Uh, uh, four months, right, for right. three jabs. Mm -hmm. So now it's already August. So August, September, October, November. So if by the time, you know, it, uh, they have finished their three jabs, it will be, you know, winter. And then we anticipate in, during the winter time, um, the, uh, the uh, uh, COVID-19 will be more serious. So we should start, you know, immunizing our uh, young children uh, right now and not uh, wait and uh, not adopt a policy of wait and see. Right, we should be we should be really pressing home on this one. Yes, we should. Are, are, you, are your patients coming, booking with you? The families? Yes, yes, your yes, yes, yes. They, 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 they are booking with, with my clinic and then and also my clinic uh, accepts uh, walk-in cases so uh, they can just walk in and if they're fit on that day, um, well, I will give them the injection on that day. Mm -hmm. Well, that's got to be good. Now we need the parents to, to bring in the children. Yeah, we really need the parents to bring the children because, um, well, uh, as you know, that um, uh, last week uh, a 22-month-old baby girl already died of uh, uh, COVID, right? And then uh, it's not that, uh, you know, uh, of course the Omicron version of uh, COVID-19 is um, milder and uh, less, has less, less uh, deaths. Uh, uh, has less death, right? But then it's still um, very, but it's very uh, uh, transmissible and infectious. And if the uh, children under the age of three are not protected by vaccination, then uh, I'm, I'm afraid they will have run, they will run into complications. And there, and always remember, for the children, there is also the, um, the, the cases of uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, mm. right? So it could um, cause a lot of trouble. And your point, I think, main point is that as we get closer to winter, um, thing, other things will be circulating. So the children yes, really need uh, to be protected mm -hmm. by that. Also, the influenza 
influenza will be coming also. So if, with influenza and COVID, you know, with a mixture of these things, and then if, the picture will be more complicated. And what about the attitude of parents uh, in general? I mean, do you think parents uh, uh, understand, most parents, uh, uh, the need for, uh, for vaccination, the, uh, the importance of getting their kids vaccinated against COVID? They do, they do. Because we are seeing, you know, those uh, age of, uh, age, starting from age, uh, from age of three, starting uh, to get their vaccination ready. Mm. And then mm. actually the parents, you know, for the, to- uh, the parents of the toddlers, you know, they also say that, oh, well, why can't we get our children vaccinated? But I say, okay, well, we have to uh, wait for the government to announce to lower the age group first before we can start vaccinating them. So I think, you know, um, parents with toddlers, the age, age, uh, age uh, you know, one onwards, they are not that concerned uh, because uh, they said, you know, since the age of three, you can already have the Sinovac, so, you know, why not? Why, why can't we give them to, the, to those, you know, uh, starting from age uh, uh, one year old? But then for the um, less than one year old, they have some concern because they are also, you know, vaccinated. Because during that age group, they have other vaccinations to, to, to do at the um, maternal and child health center, like the MMR. So they have to say, oh, I don't want to mix uh, 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 vaccinating my kids uh, with uh, um, uh, with this uh, uh, COVID nineteen vaccination and also their routine vaccination, their immunization. So they have a little bit concerned because they say, "Oh, good. what time should I, uh, you know, vaccinate them? Should I vaccinate them uh, at the same time or what?" You know, they have a little bit of concern because you know, uh, before the age of uh, 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 under the age of uh, uh, one and one and a half, they have a lot of uh, immunization to do. Sure. So the parents not want to, you know, mix up, you know, and, and vaccinate their kids at the same time, yeah. you know, with the um, um, COVID-19 vaccination. Okay, but thanks. Then, but, thanks. Then, but then for the older yeah. ones, you know, uh, right. you know, okay. about the age of uh, one or two, there's no problem for them because right. they have no more vaccination, uh, no more immunization program to, to, to complete and then they can freely, you know, have okay. a lot of time for... We've got to take, know, a, got to take uh, a break uh, now it, for it, the it news. Not, uh, Dr Kwan, thanks very much uh, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. That was uh, uh, Betty Kwan, family physician. Uh, other guests, uh, please uh, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back at three minutes past nine. Uh, the weather, it's currently uh, 27 degrees, uh, 95% humidity, and the thunderstorm warning remains uh, in effect. News on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And this morning uh, we're talking uh, more about COVID and uh, we've been discussing also the extraordinarily uh, unusually high number of imported malaria cases uh, in Hong Kong. Um, just returning to uh, COVID first, uh, we have with us still uh, Dr Vijay Danisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of uh, Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health and Dr Siddharth Sridhar, Clinical Assistant Professor at the Department of Microbiology at Hong Kong U. Um, I'd like to uh, talk to you both uh, for a few minutes about the quarantine situation because we were expecting an announcement on Friday that uh, a quarantine requirement would be um, eased somewhat in that uh, the requirement to spend seven days in a hotel 
would be uh, reduced to maybe five days, four days, something like that, and the rest of the week spent uh, at home. Uh, the announcement didn't come. We've heard that uh, uh, as technical issues are still being uh, sorted out. But um, um, what do you think? Uh, uh, perhaps uh, Dr Vijay first. Uh, uh, did you, would you agree that there, there's, there's scope to reduce the uh, length of uh, quarantine that uh, incoming travellers uh, are faced with? I, 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 in reality, I actually expect the government to fully release the travel measures, uh, which I think many have been calling for for a few months now. Um, I, I totally believe there's no reason to have any sort of travel measure, um, especially because uh, we already have more than 4,000 cases in the community. And if you're going to make a guess, let's say there's going to be 1,000 people infected coming in every day, mm -hmm. um, that actually just increases the amount, let's say 10,000. The, the question goes back to, can the healthcare handle it? Um, and that, it keeps coming back for me to the same question again. Can the healthcare handle it? And if the, if the government believes the healthcare can handle it, they should believe it fully. Um, and if they have concerns, um, I don't know what's the best day, but probably just direct home quarantine is the second best option for me. Um, hope quarantine, and I'm, I'm happy to wear a, 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 a bracelet as well. Right. So if we're going to have quarantine, make it at home. And if we're, if, we're, if we're not, then there's not really that much difference between 7 and 5 plus 2 and 4 plus 3 and 3 plus 4. It's, uh, we should better off just get, you know, scrap it and, and handle the consequences. That's right. I mean, I think um, the, um, the, the, the weight should be given to uh, advising the population that if you do, you know, detect, uh, find yourself positive, stay at home, you know, good practice and things like that, consistent and clear messaging. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, once we're living with COVID, how to, you know, manage the risk and mitigate the risk in a day-to-day -day, uh, setting, I think that, that, that's the best approach, I think, going forward. Uh, Dr. Sridhar? Oh, yeah, absolutely agree. There's definitely um, there's something that can definitely be considered to scrap it entirely. Um, on a side note, I've never quite understood why it has to be seven days uh, or four plus three or five plus two or something adding up to seven because it's not really the incubation period of the of, of Omicron. And uh, it, it, yeah, it, it seems to be more because seven days is one week. And we like to think about units of time in terms of a week. <laughs> than anything else um, but yeah it's, uh, it's definitely room to uh, re uh, reduce or even get rid of this uh, whole uh, quarantine thing but uh, again what what I'm concerned about is because um, uh, once we get rid of quarantine entirely it's it's going to turn Hong Kong into a travel hub hopefully and there's going to be many 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 more arrivals and that is going to result in an increase in COVID and we've really got to rethink about how how we deal with these mild COVID cases they're going to be mild for sure because you're going to be talking about heavily vaccinated uh, uh, relatively healthy people who are traveling uh, to and from the territory but uh, we've got to rethink about how we can make sure that these people are kept uh, outside of, uh, taken care of outside of hospitals right. uh, and not institutionalized for mild COVID. Dr. So Sridhar, be... you, you've been very clear about this, as has uh, Dr. Dan Sakharin. Um But the government's experts, they know these things. I, I just don't understand why they're so uh, intimidated where somebody doesn't seem to be flogging the idea of zero. They know. Um, they know what you said. They know uh, the same actually, things that you I know. Mean, I did. 
co-write a piece with uh, 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 Professor Yun and uh, Dr. Ivan Hong a few weeks ago, in which we talk about many of these uh, things and in terms of relaxing uh, uh, quarantine requirements for incoming travelers ASAP. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, I can vouch for the fact that they know these things because uh, Professor Yun and Dr. Hong are in the in the panel, but uh, it's just the way policy in Hong Kong is. We are, seem to be psychologically more comfortable with an incremental decrease, and uh, that's, that's just the way it is, I guess. But uh, what I want to emphasize is that it, getting rid of quarantine has to come together with a broader sense of relaxation in the community uh, around uh, COVID-19 because at the moment, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, measures we go to to uh, isolate uh, even cases of mild COVID-19 sometimes in places like Penny's Bay is, uh, mm. is, 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 is pretty extreme. And it doesn't really go together with suddenly getting rid of quarantine because it's going to affect a lot of people coming into Hong Kong with covid so, um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you've got to think of... Yeah, your reference to psychologically uh, more comfortable with gradual... Re should we be doing something with the mask mandate? Maybe scrapping it out, uh, out of doors as a first step? 100% definitely room for that, uh, especially in uh, really outdoor settings like beaches and country parks. I, I don't think uh, masks add much to those kind of outdoor settings at all. Right. Oh, well, I've been visiting beaches. I've visited four beaches in the last two weekends. I think the community is ahead of, ahead of the policy. People are not wearing their mask on the beach at all. They're, they're taking them off and, and even walking around and, and hiking. Um, sort of close to beaches without wearing yeah. a mask. So they, they yeah. seem to have absorbed your message uh, a little quicker than the, the committee. Hey, and that's what we saw in 2020, right? Before mask mandates were a thing, people were wearing masks in indoor settings. So you never underestimate the uh, intelligence of you know the, 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 the people, right? <laughs> Yes, because it's pointed out, of course, that uh, many many other parts of the world have completely uh, done away with COVID restrictions and there's no more mask mandates, people are not wearing masks and so on. But are any particular Hong Kong factors which make it advisable to continue to do so, at least in urban settings? I mean, I'm thinking about on the, coming into work on the MTR when uh, you're sort of, you know, in a crowded carriage with hundreds of other people. <laughs> I don't think the tube is materially... Well, and you mean in London? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 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 any thoughts about that, Dr. Dr. Sridhar or, uh, or Dr. Vijay? About, no. uh, yeah, the, the, um, any mean, reasons really why we should continue? There's yeah. increasing studies which really show the masks are quite effective. Um, and I totally agree that we don't need masks in outdoor scenarios where there's good airflow. Um, and even outdoor, um, 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 any settings, literally. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I think um, there should be positive reinforcement rather than ma mandates. And I don't really like mandates for anything. Um, there should be, you know, positive messaging, uh, encouraging Hong Kongers to actually wear masks when they're in a crowded scenario, movie theaters and things like that. And it's not wrong. And I think it's good public health messaging. But I think the mandatory thing should be removed and should slowly, you know, the responsibilities must be transferred to the community, just like what you were discussing just now. Right. So not a mandate, but use your common sense according to where you are and carry a mask in your pocket. 
and put it on if that makes you feel comfortable in that setting. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, well, ju just a, re a, a reminder, of course, for the listeners that uh, uh, mask uh, wearing is uh, mandatory in uh, a number of uh, situations, to, to just, uh, just to remind everybody of that point. Uh, um, um, email here from listener Phil says, uh, the fifth wave was a huge wake-up call with uh, 10,000 people dying of COVID because they were largely not vaccinated. Parents must get their kids vaccinated. It's a must as consequences are huge. Um, um, Dr. Sridhar, where are we now, do you think, with the vaccination campaign? I, I think, uh, well, obviously better than the beginning of this year because we've been helped along by a huge proportion of the population being infected, unfortunately, which has led to hybrid immunity, so people getting combinations of vaccination and natural infection, which gives us that kind of immunity wall against more severe disease that we were uh, talking about earlier in the program. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've still got some way to go in terms of uh, getting those boosters into older people above 80. So I think we're still not uh, uh, doing great. I mean, uh, there, there is a lot of focus on children, and that is good. But let's not lose sight of the fact that um, deaths due to COVID occur basically or almost entirely in the elderly population and we saw that very very clearly in the fifth wave so let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, pushing vaccination this population or boosters in this population is essentially the most important component of our um, pandemic response it, it remains the case today as it did last year as we know the protection uh, from the vaccine shots does decline over time uh, do you think we're going to get to a stage where, you know, we'll have to have a booster, say, every three months or every six months or something like that? I honestly don't think that applies to the general healthy population or even children, for that matter, who are fundamentally at much lower risk of severe COVID. That may, I mean, an annual booster, for example, with an updated, uh, for example, like an Omicron shot, like we're expecting later this year, uh, would, would be required for those with underlying health conditions or those who are elderly, because uh, just the same way we do for influenza, because this population is A, at high risk of disease, B, doesn't have the best immune system. So we do need to keep reminding their bodies of what uh, Omicron looks like so they're able right. to mount an effective mm. immune response against the virus. Can it be combined with the annual flu shot? I, I, as far as I know, there are no um, trials looking at com combined flu and uh, Omicron shots. Uh, they're quite different in a way in terms of their manufacturing processes. Perhaps that's something we can look at, especially if uh, influenza mRNA vaccines get off the ground. But uh, for the moment, they're going to have to be separate. Right. So they might be at the same time, but they're going to be separate, Jeff. Giving them at the same time. Um, uh, in fact, there, there's some growing consensus now that yeah, you can probably give uh, COVID shots together with other vaccines. Unlike the situation last year, where we generally recommended separating them by um, 14 days or more. So that's something that we can look at. Mm. Well, that's right. I remember they checked yeah. when I went for my fourth shot. They looked at the date of my annual flu shot. Right, right. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, Professor Danis Sakharan, do you, do you have any thoughts on that subject? Um, uh, not really. No, thanks. Mm. 
<laughs> right, okay. All right. Um, well, look, uh, thanks very much to uh, both of you for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Um, that was uh, Dr. Vijay Danisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health. And uh, thanks very much also to Dr. Siddhartha Sridhar, Clinical Assistant Professor at the Department of Microbiology at the University of Hong Kong. We're moving on to our second uh, topic in just a moment. I think we have our guests uh, on the line. Um, we're going to talk about um, some research uh, which was conducted um, in fact, by AIDS Concern, um, also with the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong's uh, uh, Jockey Club School of Public Health and Primary Care. Um, this, this research was into um, cyber fraud, which uh, was experienced by quite a large number of young people, actually, about one in four of the young adults who were questioned um, and this was something that they encountered while using uh, dating apps, which, uh, as we know, is a, a very uh, common popular thing now among young people. But uh, we're joined on the line by uh, Jason Chan, who's a programme manager with uh, AIDS Concern, and Sherry Yang, who's a, a research assistant professor uh, with that uh, Chinese uh, university uh, division. Good morning to you both. Morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. So, um, so uh, Jason Chan, perhaps uh, if we could uh, just start with you, just to remind the listeners. So, you, you found your research found that yeah, one in four young Hong, Hong Kong adults had encountered uh, this cyber fraud when using data apps, and also interestingly, uh, people with higher education levels were more reluctant to seek help. Um, what can we conclude from your research here? Thank you. Um, actually, during the COVID, there are more teenagers or young uh, people are using dating apps because of the city's lockdown and they are forced to stay at home so that their uh, social life has been stopped. And that's why more people are using dating apps to connect with others, uh, particularly uh, because of the um, uh, stay-at-home period is quite long. Um, many of them have already uh, uh, not much entertainment they can use in the internet already. And uh, however, when they are meeting new faces on the dating apps, um, currently we find that many young people, they don't know how to protect their personal uh, uh, information, including photos or some uh, address, telephone numbers, or even private photos uh, when they are meeting new uh, strangers on the dating apps. And we find that uh, for, in our research, we find that for people who uh, have higher uh, education level, because they have a uh, thought that uh, others will have high expectancy on themselves. Uh, that means uh, because you have a high education level, you should not be usually being fooled by the others on the dating apps. And uh, some of them, because they have a full-time job, even they have been scammed for like a few hundred dollars, they think, okay, uh, let it go. It is okay for me to lose a few hundred dollars as long as no one knows I'm being a uh, victim of a um, uh, fraud case. And they think that will be okay and they will be just let it go. Hmm. What forms do these scams take? I mean, how do they end up lo losing money, you know, even mm -hmm. if it's just a few hundred dollars? Um, in Hong Kong, according to our experience, some common type of scam that they were experiencing, including Roman scams and also some uh, 
online investment fraud, uh, or even some of the uh, young people, they may experience some uh, negative checkback mail. Just like for the Roman scam, uh, the, uh, the scammers, they will try to approach the users using some fake accounts with beautiful pictures or handsome men, and they will try to gain the trust from the uh, victims. After that, they will start to try to gather as much as personal information during the dialogue. Uh, for example, uh, to explore where the victim studies or where they work, uh, what is their jobs, uh, and they will try to connect you with on, on other social media accounts, just like Facebook or even WhatsApp. And by the, all these information, uh, the scammers will try to uh, investigate or collect the personal information of the victims. As long as they have uh, gathered enough uh, uh, information from the victims, they will try to ask them for some uh, uh, private pictures or videos. And after they get this information, they will um, tell, they will start to uh, uh, fraud. What, what, is the re what is the read across with AIDS, AIDS concern in this? Because uh, uh, in some cases, some of the people will even lose their sexual health. Because for some uh, father thought, uh, they will re uh, really meet up with the uh, uh, strangers online, and then they will have some uh, sexual intercourse when they meet. And uh, because they don't know how to protect themselves, they didn't uh, try to ask uh, the uh, strangers if they get any STI test before, or they uh, will persuade the victims not to use the condoms when they have the sexual intercourse. And finally, they, they have been infected with some, uh, some kind of sexually transmitted infections. Mm. Mm. Uh, um, Sherry Yang, uh, good morning to you. Yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, uh, so the research also found that um, the victims of this cyber fraud were also uh, experiencing uh, higher depression levels and anxiety and uh, their sleep patterns were being um, disrupted. I mean, it, and, and we're talking about quite a high proportion. More than 20% of respondents had encountered this in the two weeks uh, leading up to the interviews for the survey. So, that, so uh, that's a lot of people are falling victim to this, aren't they? Yes. Uh, it's interesting that we found that uh, we, uh, in our sample, we divided our sample into uh, three groups, uh, including uh, dating app users, non-users, users who didn't encounter cyber fraud in the past two weeks, and users encountering uh, cyber fraud in the past two weeks. And uh, interesting that we found that users encountering cyber fraud had the poorest mental health including their uh, depression, they suffer some uh, depressive symptoms in the past two weeks, anxiety and uh, poor sleep quality. Well, interesting that there was no significant difference between users and non-users in mental health. Uh, users who didn't uh, encounter cyber fraud and non-users in mental health uh, in mental health status. Um, uh, what's worse, about half of the users who encountered cyber fraud had severe depression and anxiety, which means that um, these people in the past two weeks, they may uh, frequently experience like uh, feeling down, depressed, hopeless, uh, little interest uh, or pleasure in doing anything, 
uh, trouble falling or uh, staying uh, asleep or sleeping too much, or, or they uh, have a poor appetite or feeling bad about themselves. They may have trouble concentrate on uh, on doing things such as reading the newspapers or watching television. Uh, even more, they they may uh, have some thoughts that uh, they would like uh, they would be better of dead or, or or hurting themselves. So it's quite mm. serious. What's, what's the law enforcement situation like in this area? Are the police pursuing any of this? Actually, right now, according to the law, there is uh, so, uh, not much can be done uh, by the uh, by the police force. It's because many of the scammers they are not located in Hong Kong, and it is very difficult to identify who are the scammers. And um, and another reason is because uh, for the victim, it is very difficult for them to provide valid information to the police force to identify who are the scammers right now. Hmm. So, because someone can send you. A a photograph of a beautiful young lady, if you're a guy, or a handsome young man, if you're a, a girl, but you don't know if that's a, a real, the real person. Yeah, maybe, maybe when you see the picture, it's a girl, but actually the scammer at the, at the back, uh, behind is a man. Yes, and and as you said, there could be factories of these. They could all maybe all in the Philippines or something, as long as their English is good enough, or as long as their can, Chinese is good enough. Yeah, because many of the checks they, they used to uh, uh, have was in a text form. It's not in a real dialogue. Right. Uh, that's why they they, would, they cannot identify who they are talking to at the back end. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of the problem involves uh, personal photos of people as well, doesn't it? Personal yeah, images. there's another problem that mm. we, we have these days is because uh, for people, uh, they already get used to upload their pri- uh, uh, daily life photos onto the internet, just like Facebook or Instagram. Uh, just like uh, when they go to meet their friends, when they go to church, and etc. That's why once the scammers, they identify the real accounts of the victims, they can easily get a lot of information about the victims easily through their social media accounts or even LinkedIn. So, um, Sherry Yang, what advice would you have uh, for young people in terms of how they can protect themselves better? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, there are some um, uh, uh, institutes and service providers have yeah. tried mm. very hard to help uh, these people uh, and develop some support system for them. Uh, I have seen some NGOs conducted education programs and uh, campaigns to enhance awareness and practical uh, skills of network and information security in young people to help them avoid falling victims to cyber-dependent crime or fraud and understand victims' experience so that they uh, would be less likely to be uh, to, to falling uh, uh, to become a victim. So for uh, these uh, young uh, people, uh, they, I think they, they can learn some practical tips that can help them uh, to uh, avoid uh, falling victim to cyber-dependent crimes, such as uh, changing their uh, password regularly uh, and using different passwords uh, of the different sites. 
uh, in the ensuring that they have a, a firewall, a firewall or antivirus protection on their computer, and then uh, don't share some uh, too much personal details uh, to the strangers, or don't send or receive uh, money, and use some trusted dating websites. And uh, I think. Uh, 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 the most important thing is that they should think twice before using uh, uh, their webcam. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, be aware of be aware of uh, the there is a, a, a potential chance that they can be a victim. And uh, uh, another thing I really I would like to uh, highlight here is that uh, for those who already been a victim uh, of cyber fraud. Um, uh, I also encourage them uh, to be, uh, they should be empowered and reduce their self-stigma. And we, as the general public, should reduce public, uh, public stigma towards uh, these victims mm -hmm. to reduce uh, second damage to uh, these victims. Um, uh, because uh, we 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 already observed some like uh, negative, negative stereotypes, prejudice, and uh, discrimination towards these uh, victims. Uh, uh, we should the, the victims should should understand that there are always new online scams being developed by fraudsters to try and trick. Uh, trick us into uh, give them money or personal information. So it is important to always be uh, vigilant. Um, however, even the most careful people can be caught out. So there is no need to feel embarrassment or shame if you have been a victim. Sure. So, so everybody beware when you go And seek help yeah. from your family, okay. friends, and professionals. Yeah. Thank you very much for speaking to us on the program this morning. That was uh, Sherry Yang, a research assistant professor at the Chinese University's uh, uh, School of Public Health and Primary Care. And thanks also very much to Jason Chen, a program manager with uh, AIDS Concern. And thank you to our listeners and to everybody who wrote in. Thanks very much to you, Mike, our co-host. Looking, looking forward to the announcement. Uh, later That's from right. the well, chief executive well, that, that, exactly let's see let's see what transpires um a look at the weather uh, uh rumbly thundery weather today we can uh, sure everybody's heard it we can hear it in the here in the studio actually so uh, uh it's gonna be mainly cloudy with showers and thunderstorms uh sunny intervals in the afternoon